Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Good Theology Podcast. I'm Jake, and I am here with David Campbell. And it is a pleasure to have you join us as always. Hope you are doing so well at whatever point in your week that you are listening to this. And hey, if you like us, and I hope that you do like us, and if you listen to us regularly, I'm assuming that you like us okay. Probably like David more than me, and that's okay, honestly. Although I have been told that some of some of you out there, you're a rare breed, but you you like what I bring to the conversation. And I appreciate that a whole lot. Anyway, before I ramble too much, can I ask you to give us five stars uh, on whatever platform that you listen to this podcast on? Leave us a little comment, a review. Tell us how much you love David and how much you tolerate me would mean the world to us. And of course, um, you can sign up for our weekly newsletter as well. In fact, why don't you sign up for our weekly newsletter while David turns off his notifications and his sounds and all of that, which he frequently forgets to do when we hop on to do podcasts. But I can't blame him. He's such a busy person. Everybody needs him. And uh, yeah, what's our website? I think it's vastpodcast.io. I think that's our, I'm going to test that. Yeah, vastpodcasts.io. You can sign up for our website there. Or sorry, for our newsletter there. And stay in the loop about all the things that are happening. We have some freaking brilliant stuff in the works, which I am so excited about. Stuff that's going to be very helpful, in fact, for people who have their own podcasts or pastors as well. So excited about all that. Anyway, David, how are you? It's good to be together with you as always. Thank you. It's good to be here. I'm um, in a casual mode having a cup of tea and a cookie. So I hope that wasn't going to put anybody off. Is it a shortbread cookie? Mm, nope. What kind of cookie is it? It's a healthy one made with, you know, almond flour or something that you might think isn't very tasty, but actually it is. My wife actually, tries to Actually, I had an almond flour cookie yesterday and uh, my my first bite was uh, met, with dis- met with displeasure. I didn't like it at first, um, but then I took another bite and I was like, you know what? It's it's not too bad. Plus I was just hungry. So that is. right now there's a cliff bar on my little coffee table behind me and uh, I haven't haven't fallen for that bait yet because those things are disgusting. Anyway, you are right now in between Sundays where you're doing a somewhat of a deep dive on the book of Revelation for my dear friend, Sam Picken over in Toronto, who leads C3 Toronto. And so you did the first Sunday there this last weekend. How did that go? Well, you know, Sam is amazing man, and he's an amazing evangelist, among other things, because um, I preached from the first three verses of Revelation. And he gave gospel invitations at the end of both services, and eleven people put put up their hand to receive Christ. So amazing! It was amazing. It was a great time. Okay, so this you are doing two week two weekends on Revelation, and you spent the first weekend on the first three verses. You I'm sure you jumped all over the place from there, but I exegeted the first three verses, right? And with. Uh, but because they set the stage for how to understand the rest of the right. other four one verses. Right. Um, yes, yes. So I did that, and then next week uh, I'm going to preach on uh, the first part of chapter 12 because okay. it's a perfect example of the symbolic nature of Revelation and where you take um, all the strange things that appear in it and trace them back to the Old Testament illusion. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That's what gives meaning. Um, 
Is but, chapter 12, is that the woman and the child and the dragon and yes. the two witnesses? Am I remembering right? Old star. Yay. <laughs> I've read your book and can't recommend it enough. Mystery explained, ladies and gentlemen. Get a hold of it. And the longer version, ironically called A Shorter Commentary by uh, David and G.K. Beale. Um, is also a bit more in-depth and very, very great. Okay, so uh, we are kicking off a new uh, collection of episodes today where we're going to be going through a book by Nancy Piercy. For those of you who have read any Nancy, any of Nancy Piercy's work, you would know how wonderful it is. Uh, Total Truth is a phenomenal work. And then we're going through one of her books, Love Thy Body. Um, she has another book. Uh, as well, that is just about to come out um, on uh, masculinity and femininity. So I'm excited to read that. That should be really, really great. But this book is called Love Thy Body because it is dealing with a whole slew of uh, issues in our day, everything from uh, sexuality, transgenderism. Uh, and when I say sexuality, I mean uh, a very fast and loose approach to sex and also homosexuality, uh, abortion, euthanasia, a whole bunch of topics um, and speaks to them from a biblical perspective, but takes a deep dive into uh, the worldview that underlies why our culture thinks the way it does in regards to a lot of these topics. And so I'm looking forward to diving into that discussion over the next several weeks. We will do the introduction and chapter one today. And then we will take it from there. There are, let's see here. Let me pull it up. How many chapters are there in this book? There are seven. So yeah, the next seven weeks or so. So it should be really fun. I'm excited about it and not at all controversial. Um, but before we do that, we have a couple of questions that came in to our Instagram. Every now and then we'll post a, a Q&A for people to shoot us over some questions. And so I thought I'd fire off a couple of those for us to discuss before we jump into uh, the main portion of our conversation. The first question is this, why don't the majority of Christians remember the Sabbath? Why don't the majority of Christians remember the Sabbath? Thank you to this person for this question. And it's uh, a very relevant question because there is a lot of chatter in the kingdom of God in the West right now uh, about the Sabbath and how we are to think about the Sabbath. I think we've talked about this a bit in a previous episode, but let's uh, readdress it. Um, I'll let you go first because you're smarter. Go ahead. Well, I don't know about that. I just said more time to read stuff and think than you will. Probably when you're, you get to my age, you'll be smarter than me. God uh, willing. God willing. <laughs> oh, well, first of all, um, Jesus, according to the Gospel of John, which I'm reading through at the moment, Jesus defines himself or reveals himself as the fulfillment of all the Jewish feasts, including the Sabbath. What, uh, uh, what scripture verse do you have in mind there, just for people's reference? No. Um, Sorry so, to put you on the spot. Well, no, it's all right. Um, uh, uh, if you go through the Gospel of John, <laughs> um, if you go through the Gospel of John, you'll see a theme where uh, uh, it's centered around many of the Jewish feasts and rituals. And in each of them, Jesus defines himself as the fulfillment of these. Right. So it starts um, with the concept of the Lamb of God, 
which is Jesus being a fulfillment of Passover. Uh, that's right there in chapter 1. And then before we get to the end of chapter 1, we have the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending, where Jesus is quoting, is going back to Bethel and Jacob uh-huh. and saying, uh, and the angels ascend and descend on the Son of Man. So Jesus is defining himself as the fulfillment of Bethel of that encounter that Jacob had with God. So Jesus is the presence of God. Uh, and then when we get into um, chapter 2, uh, he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So now Jesus is defining himself as the fulfillment of the temple. When we get into uh, a chapter 4 in Samaria and the woman at the well, uh-huh. um, uh, Jesus defines himself as the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies about uh, living water coming, you know, and the water coming out of the temple in Ezekiel and uh-huh. uh, and so on and various other uh, places. And then, let's see, in... And if we're thinking just of like Old Testament fulfillments, chapter 6, he's the fulfillment of the bread that came down from heaven. So he is the new manna. That's right. Well, I'm just flipping through here. I just got to chapter 5, but you're, you're, you're correct. Jumping ahead. Yes. He defines himself as the new manna in, mm-hmm. in chapter 6. And then when he, then we're, where we have the healing of the man at the, at the pool mm-hmm. uh, of Bethesda, uh, Jesus says um, he was not only breaking the Sabbath, uh, but he was even calling God his own father. Uh-huh. So Jesus is basically saying, uh, I'm the Sabbath. Uh-huh. You know, I can break the rules about the Sabbath because the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. That comes uh-huh. in this, the Gospels as well. Yeah, that's Mark. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. And so then let's you, say that, go ahead, yeah. Yeah, and, and it follows through into the Feast of Dedication and the Feast uh-huh. of Tabernacles, you know, as the Gospel proceeds. And so one after the other, uh, Passover, uh, Feast of Dedication, Feast of Tabernacles, the Sabbath, the Temple, um, the the House of God, Bethel, all these things, one after the other, Jesus says, I am. You know, of course, that's a lot in John. I am that. You, so <laughs> in that sense, all those things are irrelevant for us I don't know if irrelevance the right word or not, but Jesus fulfilled. They're fulfilled for us in Christ. Yeah. Yeah. Which is another powerful reason why dispensationalism is wrong because (laughs) it it brings all those things back again. Everything comes back to dispensationalism. Well, it, 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 it does in a way. Uh, if you think like me, I love it. Fighting it all the time. I mean, even on Sunday, you know, I had a couple of folk in the church in Toronto come up and say, you know, you've destroyed everything I've ever believed in mm-hmm. and, and blown, blown it up, actually. And I frequently get that phrase. And, and, I, and I'm, you know, I feel pastorally kind of sorry for them. But on the other hand, um, they believed uh, a lie, uh, <laughs> something isn't true. And, and, it, it, and I said to the one person, you know, it affects everything you believe. Uh, I was making the point, among other things, that the kingdom for some future thousand year period, the kingdom entered into this world in the preaching of Jesus of Nazareth. Mm-hmm. And we are kingdom people. You know, we're not waiting for the kingdom. We we are in the kingdom. And and that is a 
profound truth. <laughs> um, so anyway, getting back to the Sabbath in that and sense. We'll just note that comment right there because I actually want to come back to that as we get into Nancy's book because she brings up, uh, I think, an interesting point of view that ties into a conversation with our eschatological uh, understanding. So we'll come back to okay. that. And, and, and then it, moving from John over to Hebrews, there remains yet a Sabbath rest. And so we enter into the Sabbath rest uh, in Christ. And how I define that is on the seventh day, when God finished his creation, he rested. And the word means to rest and reign. Mm -hmm. So God began his rule. Um, and, uh, so that, and we were to rule with him as people who were made in his yeah, image. Because when we enter the Sabbath rest, that's entering the kingdom. And by definition, we begin to rule with Christ. <laughs> so the whole idea of the Sabbath is tied into Jesus and the arrival of the kingdom. And we are living now in an eternal Sabbath. That's basically, right. uh, Bible says we, if you got saved, if you're a uh -huh. Christian, you are living in an eternal Sabbath. <laughs> At least you're living in a Sabbath that will last through all the course of history and then it right. will flow over into eternity. Paul would um, say, for and, you died and your life is now, oh, now so, hidden with oh, Christ in God. So for, for, for those reasons, um, a, 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 you know, you can't impose uh, what's called Sabbatarianism, which is Sabbath observance on people, but... I still feel there's a principle, you know, of rest that God established in the Bible, because in the Ten Commandments, that we need to pay attention to. And personally, uh -huh. I think that uh, if by some uh, extraordinary means um, our laws were changed back again so that you couldn't do very much on a Sunday uh, other than go to church, I think that would be a darn good thing. Uh, Take a page out of Chick-fil-A's book. Because it, it, uh, it, it, it is a time to rest. Uh, and obviously... Well, let's, let's ask this question. Like, what, what principally is God teaching Israel through the introduction of the Sabbath? Why, hey, work six days, which that's a whole other conversation in terms of how hard they worked. But why work six days and rest one day? What was he teaching them? Well, because you're following the example of God who rested on the seventh day. God doesn't have to give a reason er. for his commandments. Um, I think that uh, part of the, the reasoning is to focus, to spend the day focusing on the things of God and on the, the you know, gathering of God's people. <laughs> but it also has a prophetic meaning that every time the Sabbath takes place, it is it, it was a prophetic foreshadowing of Christ and of the eternal rest that we were going to enter into in Christ, mm -hmm. which we've now entered into. Well, I think on another layer too, it reaches back, right? So when we're created in the image of God, that, uh, as I understand, that image bearing a, uh, a co-regency, a, a co-ruling, uh, in other words, a partnership with God. And so that is, at that point in time, before the fall, we are in God's rest as man and woman. And that rest is partnership. Uh, and that partnership is founded upon. Uh, right. We were. Tru go ahead. We were in the Sabbath. In the we were in the, exactly. We were in it. And that partnership was founded upon, I, I guess I would use the word trust, although trust is probably not the most accurate because uh, to even use the word trust 
implies that there's something other than trust. That it was unbroken relationship. And, and so that's what we had. That's what we, we forfeited uh, by trusting in self, by believing lies and the idolization of, of self uh, instead of the true worship of God. And so in, in Jesus, there's new creation. The, in, in the resurrection, there is like the re-entrance back into that. It's like the eighth day of creation I've heard it talked about, right? Where it's like, now we're entering back into that rest in Christ with God. And so as Christians, accurately speaking, we are perpetually in that rest. The question is, do we live in accordance with that reality? And when we're not living in accordance with that reality, that's when we, we are m missing the peace that comes along with the rest of God. And so I agree with you principally, just as we would look at all of the Ten Commandments and go, okay, well, these should be certainly applied in our lives. I think rest is uh, a fact as well. Um, and it might even be so that we should have a day where we, you know, we don't do anything that, that probably is healthy, where we, we don't try to be productive because our partnership is founded upon trust and we're trusting God ultimately to be the caretaker for our lives. I, I don't know, something like that. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, uh, the radical interpretation, uh, of the old Testament command, which Jesus was fond of giving radical interpretations is remember the Sabbath to keep it holy is that every day is to be kept holy. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, every day belongs to God, uh, just one. Uh, but in that, um, there's, it makes common sense to, to both to rest and to take time to focus on sure. things of God and especially on the corporate gathering. Well, God's I like what you just said, right? Because that, that would be kind of a, a Sermon on the Mount type approach where when Jesus is discussing exactly. things like murder and adultery, he takes it much deeper. And so for the Christian, I'm pretty comfortable saying that it's, it's less about a day and it's more about your life. Um, and I wouldn't in any way want to use that as a means of justifying perpetual work. That's, that's not what I would put forward at all. I, I believe in, in, in actual rest as a form of trusting God and, and worshiping God, but there's, there's something deeper than a day. And it's, as you said, it's, it's all the days, which is, you know, that's the indication of our relationship with him, I suppose. So anyway, uh, some good thoughts, perhaps maybe a bit, um, more to be said there, but for the sake of time, we will move on. And let's enter into a conversation uh, about Nancy Piercy's book, Love Thy Body. Definitely recommend that you guys grab a hold of this if you haven't read it already. It's a few years old at this point, but just as relevant uh, as ever. Um, David, have you read any of Nancy Piercy's stuff before? No, I've okay. heard of it, but never read anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, so far, it's great. Yeah. So she okay. is uh, or was a disciple of Francis Schaeffer. Um, who was a, uh, a great thinker in his own right. Um, and from what I understand, quite evangelistic in his approach through reaching into young lives through his ministry, Labrie. Where was that? Was that the Switzerland. Switzerland, the Swiss Alps, I think? It sounds honestly amazing when I read about it. Just home up in the mountains where people go and learn about Christ. Um, and that's how she got saved. So she was, I think, a self-described agnostic and had walked away from her Christian faith for all kinds of 
what she thought were intellectual reasons, uh, but then stumbled across Laverie during some European travels. Uh, and that piqued her interest. She went back to America and then eventually went back to Labrie. And that's where she became a Christian. And now she writes a lot, particularly on the topic of worldview and helping Christians to think through their worldview from a biblical perspective in contrast to uh, the world. So one of the things that she focuses in on, in on a lot is something that Francis Shaver himself talked about, which was this two-story mode of thinking, this dualistic uh way of viewing reality, dualistic, not in an integrated sense where the two complement one another, uh, as would be true in Christianity, like spirit and matter, uh, but dualistic in a non-integrated sense that the two are uh, having nothing to do with one another. And from a secular perspective, only one is really true and the other is just personal values and opinions, which then she ties into this phrase, the fact value split. So we have publicly agreed upon facts. That is the empirical realm, what science tells us. And then we have values, things that are true for you, but not true for me. And we're all kind of just agreeing to disagree about that stuff and get along. Um, as long as we all agree on the facts, we can all have our own personal lives. Um, and she points out all kinds of inconsistencies that come along with that worldview. Before we get there, let's talk a bit about the foundation for how we arrived into that mode of thinking. Well, yeah, it, it, uh, and you know, Schaefer, I think when I read his books, when I was a young Christian, they're great. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I, you know, I think he had a knack, an ability to kind of digest um, uh, several centuries of philosophy and and uh, and recast them mm -hmm. in a way that the average person could understand, or at least the average, let's say, college ed educated person could understand. And and so he went back to the Enlightenment modern rationalism, uh, you know, the idea that uh, the only reality is what we can see and touch and taste and, and feel. And uh, spiritual reality is inaccessible or mysterious. And this went off a number of directions. Uh, some people, um, for some people, the and and he divided this into a like a two story house. The top story right. was what's unprovable and inaccessible. The bottom story was what can be proven empirically or through uh, our five senses scientifically. Let's let's say. And the um, uh, first things to be said is that this was not the foundation of modern science. I've I've just read. An extraordinary book by Stephen Meyer, the the, the um, um, return of the God hypothesis, uh -huh. uh, and he gives a potted history of modern science and shows how it was rooted in Christian thinking, very very strongly. Uh, so, in originally, you know, going back five six hundred years, uh, there was there was no contradiction 
it was not perceived to be a contradiction between science and faith simply because all of the world was believed to be God's creation. And the foundation of Western science is in the Judeo-Christian understanding um, of creation by a personal God uh, where everything makes sense. There's a, a, an order to everything that's created. It's not just irrational. It's not just stuff you know, that, that came out of nothing or by chance or whatever. And, and that is what that Judeo-Christian worldview, not modern scientism or materialistic philosophy or atheism, that that biblical worldview was what birthed. We would not have modern science without it. Um, and that's the distinction between, between the Western civilization that had the benefit of that biblical worldview and civilizations elsewhere, which, which didn't. That's uh -huh. why the West, so to speak, was the birthplace of modern science. Um, so, uh, they, you know, I had a, a professor, Leslie Dewar, who was very famous at the time as a, a philosopher, nobody, including himself, I think could understand his, what he was saying, but wow. <laughs> Sounds <Anyway>. brilliant. <laughs> we made a statement one day in this class, you know, the foundation of Western progress, the progress of Western civilization, the, the Western, the, the progress of Western civilization is built on the structure of the sentence. Of course, everybody's sort of their eyes popped out and they're sitting at the edge of their seat, hoping he can explain it. And he said, because uh, when we pose a question with, uh, uh, you know, those that have come out of a Judeo-Christian worldview, we automatically assume there's an answer to every question. That's right. not true in many other cultures. Questions are posed and it's assumed the answer is a big mystery and no one will ever know. So... He, that he was saying the same kind of thing. So that, but then when the Enlightenment came about, the so-called Enlightenment, it was biggest misnomer in, in history, uh, uh, and uh, people began to say, well, look, um, uh, only what is in front of us, you know, faith is a mysterious thing. You can't really understand it. Uh, and, but you can understand what you can prove through you know, let's say scientific reasoning or empirical facts, data, the evidence of our senses and so on. And so, um, and so there began to be a division where uh, the upper story, which was the realm of faith or the realm of feelings, the realm and beyond that, the realm of just human values uh, and not necessarily just Christian faith, but any kind of faith or any kind of worldview philosophical worldview about the meaning of the world and the meaning of life or anything like that. That was all in this inaccessible top story, which you could kind of guess about or speculate about, but who knows whether you're right or not. Whereas in the bottom story was where science took place. So you see, there's this splitting of science away from the very thing that had made science possible in the Western world. There was a divorce from it. And uh, you know, it got rampant in uh, Darwinism and Marxism, uh, where it was absolute outright materialism, a denial of God. Uh, and so, uh, and so, in response to this, um, not just Christians but uh, other thinkers as well tried to grapple with this, 
by proposing, you know, that we could somehow still live in this upper story where we had values and feelings and could touch God or whatever. Um, But the two got separated out. Uh And this is the point that she's making and where Francis Schaeffer came in and, and, and drew his picture of the two-story house. Um, increasingly, in the Western world, reality itself was exclu- was a, a property only of the lower story, uh-huh. and the upper story of faith, values, and so on uh, became less and less real and more a matter of just speculation and of no value. And pretty soon, you get the rise of outright materialism where, you know, as Darwin said, and, and Richard Dawkins and people like that, uh, Stephen Hawking, you know, there's, the, the, the re- reality is just blind, meaningless chance. Think, uh, uh, blind, pitiless indifference is the... That's Richard Dawkins, right. right. And uh, Stephen Meyer, in his book, Return of the God Hypothesis, tries several trucks through this thinking and shows how internally inconsistent it is. And... He, the, one of the most interesting parts, we're digressing now, but I'm digressing, but one of the most interesting parts in it is he shows how Stephen Hawking, his PhD work and research, which was brilliant, uh, he established, uh, uh, you know, the reality of the, the Big Bang and the fact that the universe went back to what's called a singu- singularity, which, which demands the presupposition or the conclusion, I should say, that there's an intelligent mind that created the universe. You can't get away from it. And in his popular works, Hawking um, didn't touch on what he had actually established in his academic work uh, because um, he was an atheist. He and didn't like the implication. Like he, the logical conclusions of, of his own work and in the end, he and various others began to propose that the intelligent mind behind the universe was aliens. I'm, I am being serious. I'm being mm-hmm. absolutely serious. Mm-hmm. The multiverse and aliens and you, you get, you, and, and Dr. Meyer, uh, who is a scientist himself and quotes prolifically from all sorts of other scientists, some of whom are Christians and some of whom aren't, shows the absolute impossibility of this line of reasoning you know, biological and scientific standards, but we're stuck. You know, these people get, including this brilliant man, Stephen Hawking, all get stuck in the lower story. Uh-huh. And so, um, the inco- which is really interesting, right? Because then when they go home, they have to reintroduce the upper story into their own lives in order to function. And, and this is something that I think people don't think about a lot of the time is if there is only the lower story and if all of those isms like materialism and naturalism and empiricism are all there is to reality, then that means that I, when I tell my wife that I love her, I don't really say anything of meaning. Because what I really mean is that there's a, there's a chemical reaction happening in my brain that causes me to feel feelings that our, you know, our fondness for her. But ultimately, those feelings, I suppose, are just self-serving because my quote-unquote love for her is a, a way of claiming her and promulgating my own kind. So, 
or, or in fact, they're illusory because you don't even exist other than as a collection of atoms. Right. And where it all becomes inherently self-contradictory is that Stephen Hawking uses his mind, which is obviously more than a collection of atoms, to come to a philosophical worldview, which is a, a, a faith position just as much as Christianity is. So Hawking is taking a faith position. Richard Dawkins is taking a faith position just as much as Christians do. It's just that ours makes coherent, logical sense, uh, not only internally, but also externally in relation to the nature of the universe, as science has shown it to be. Ours yeah. makes sense and theirs doesn't. It's contradictory. Mm -hmm. So they're reintroducing uh, on the sly uh, you know, the idea of mind. And as soon as you introduce that, the question is, where did this mind come from? Right. Because and technically speaking, there is no mind. There is just brain. Right. But the <laughs> Hawking's research, PhD work showed, along with many other scientists, you know, since showed that mind exists behind the universe. <laughs> and, you know, like this is nothing new. Uh, Plato got all this back two uh, and a half thousand years ago, uh, approximately, um, in that, you know, he, he was grappling with the same issues of here's material reality and I have a perception of A, B, and C, which means that there's something in me that is more than just material reality. Uh, and and it must be mind. And so he speculated on the cosmic mind and where I got my mind from. And he took it in several different directions. <laughs> um, but it's why the Greeks developed this idea of the immortality of the soul. <laughs> and Nancy Piercy picks this up in her book in, a, in the sense that... Uh, for Plato, he believed in the concept of the good, uh -huh. but he didn't necessarily define it in Christian terms because it was divorced from the lower story of Plato's world, which was the material world. And it, 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 didn't, it, was, it didn't really matter. It, it was of low consequence, uh, the material bodily world. So uh, you've got Socrates and Plato and all their associates um, having, uh, you know, sexual um, relationships with young boys. And this is in the, you know, it's right there. It's not, they don't say anything wrong with it. Right. Um, at the same time, they're debating the good and they're looked up to as, you know, these are the philosophers that understand what is good and so on. Because... The good is intellectual concepts and the good is finding truth about reality. It doesn't relate to how you live life, you know, in your body. Right. The Whereas, physical world is inconsequential. Which is that, world is, that's that it, disintegrated dualism. And is to be avoided. <laughs> so that's, you know. Or even on an extreme view in Gnosticism is, is evil. Gnosticism is basically Neoplatonism. So Plato lived, you know, three or 400 years before Christ. And then he established something called the Academy and that continued his thought. Um, but gradually, uh, it got mixed in 
uh, after three or 400 years, it got mixed in with religious concepts. So Gnosticism, you know, it introduced various divinities and spirits and, uh, you know, gods and so on and religious rituals into a Platonic worldview. So Gnosticism, like Platonism, was it doesn't matter what you do with your body. The body is, the you know, material realm is is garbage. And our our goal is to, you know, um, move upward and escape it. Uh, this present world <laughs> and so on. And, uh, and so what Nancy Piercy is arguing here, she's taking all this and basically saying, you know, there has been uh, a, a resurgence. Uh, first of all, we're dealing with materialism where the val- eternal v- values of right and wrong are taken out of the equation because uh, we're just a collection of atoms thrown together. doesn't matter. But then, um, because human beings can't live like that, they have to create this upper story. They have Mm -hmm. to find some kind of meaning. They have to find something. Like people will say quite often today, the universe, you know, uh, the universe did this or the universe did that. I mean, what an absolutely stupid thing to say. You know, what is the universe doing? You know, but Uh what they're, what they're, they're trying to reach out for some Uh thing beyond the material level <laughs> and so which um, ultimately le- lends to where we are now because when you reach out to something that isn't there you, you end up getting uh dejected by that and so now we reach in and we look within for truth and we look within for meaning and try to find within ourselves something sturdy enough upon which we can build meaningful lives and uh experience peace that abides. Um, and we learn in that, that we are very finite and limited beings who are actually not quite capable of producing such rock solid truth. All we can come up with is what's true for me and you can have what's true for you, which leads to a very disintegrated society. And yes, because uh, the, the, uh, just, I'll just say there's one more thing that, sorry for interrupting. I'm always interrupting. Um, she's making the point that we have inherited this rat from the enlightenment that we've inherited this, um, materialistic worldview, uh, where, um, you know, we're, we're living in nothing but a collection of atoms and that, uh, but we're searching for something higher. And, and so therefore, um, there comes a division where, we become separated. For the, we, there's a material element, but there's something else up there, and the two are not integrated anymore. See, in biblical mm-hmm. thinking, they go together. Holistically, body, okay. soul, and spirit. Our body was an integral part. What we did with our body matters. Um, that's why the the uh, Christian concept of the resurrection of the body is unique in all of human human philosophy and religion does not exist anywhere else. Um, and it's opposed to the immortality of the soul. Uh-huh. What you do with your body matters. Uh-huh. And so values come into what you do with your body. But if you're living in a materialistic worldview. And, and, and your body points to what you should value. There is right. design. But it, if you, if you think it's just a bunch of atoms, uh-huh. then in that sense, 
who cares what you do with your body? It doesn't, doesn't make any difference. It's uh-huh. going back to Plato, right? You can philosophize about the good and the noble, you know, be assaulting young uh-huh. kids sexually uh-huh. at the same time and not see anything wrong with it because it really doesn't matter what you're doing with your body. Uh-huh. And this is her argument when it comes, for instance, to abortion and some of the other things she's going to unpack is that we've created this little space where we're, uh, it's called personhood theory, where we're a person, but our the person of who we are has nothing to do with our body. Uh, we're a human, but we're not a person, uh, is, is what well, she would you say. Can be, you can be a human being, <laughs> that's a physiological materialistic description, <laughs> but the person is above and beyond the level of the human being. <laughs> so then we say, well, um, an unborn baby is not a person. An unborn baby is just a collection of atoms. It's just uh-huh. tissue. doesn't matter what you do with them. And this debate goes on as to, you know, they don't deserve to have their life protected until they become a person. Uh-huh. And this, but no one which can- is, Which is assigned arbitrarily on the basis of personal value. It's incoherent. It's uh-huh. inconsistent. It's illogical. And there, and, and above all else- there is no reason why for anyone to believe that they have personhood uh, or personal reality outside of their material body uh-huh. if they're a materialist. If you are a materialist, then you have no logical, reasonable, rational, or scientific basis uh-huh. to consider that you're a person. You are. But as a, as a, because people can't live that way, they just make this up. Right. And it's, 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 and this is the logical, it's the perpetually reactionary relationship that exists between modernism and postmodernism. Like one way that I would say it is, you know, it turns out there's not so, not so big of a leap from believing that man comes from a monkey to then believing that man can become a woman. The, the, the two, uh, philosophies of materialism and, uh, subjectivism Right, relativism are very closely in, related. In, in postmodernism, so in modernism, we'll say Stephen Hawking is an example of a modernist. In modernism, um, the lower story is material reality, uh-huh. and the upper story doesn't really exist, right. except he didn't live like that, right? Right. And his, it's, or his, if you're going to look at it, it's like that's like a crutch. Like if you need that, you know, to make your way through life, then that so be well, it for you. Uh, you know, how, how he, anyway, uh, I mean, in the end he attributed to aliens, you know, his personality, I was, but, uh, but it, in postmodernism, the idea has developed that it's, it, it really goes back to Plato. It's very platonic because it, it introduces the idea that wasn't in, you know, so-called modernism, materialism, Stephen Hawking and all sorts of other people over the last couple hundred years did not did not necessarily believe that the material world was evil wrong or inferior they right. just believed it's all that that's it all was. there is right. right but in in the in postmodernism and critical theory you've got this religious um point of view coming in which which posits the identity proposes the identity of a mysterious person and the person, uh, the the person by their mind, 
has the right to impose reality on this lower material realm. Uh-huh. So if the person who is totally divorced, or at least not totally, but if the person is divorced, is not constituted by the material, it, there, there's a divorce between the two. I can decide that, you know, I'm a woman or maybe I can decide I'm a, a cow for that matter. Um, <laughs> theoretically. Not, I was expecting you to go with that. You could identify, you know, as a, a chair if you wanted to. Um, right. and so, uh, uh, and, and then you, you do get these odd situations where people identify as a cat and some idiot in a school puts kitty litter out and I don't even want to go there, but it's happening, uh, in the wacky world that we live in, uh, because, you know, the, it, this is very platonic that the material, it doesn't matter what you do in the material realm. Mm-hmm. I have the right to live what I want to. In my person, personal reality, um, even though by my own philosophical understanding of materialism, because postmodern is all materialists, um, I don't have any basis for believing that I am a person. But they simply propose that there is a personal reality, a mind, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. which then dictates to the material world below it, what the material world actually is. Mm-hmm. I think even Plato didn't go that far. You know, he said, well, we can, it doesn't matter what you do with the material body that you've got because it's kind of worthless and to be, you know, doesn't really make any difference. But he didn't say you could turn your material body into something that it isn't. Then that's how bizarre uh, irrational, unscientific, and stupid, uh, you know, the world that, that we live in. But the, the genius of Nancy Piercy's book, uh, having read the first, you know, about 20 to 25% of it, is that, you know, she's, she's found a way of applying this to these practical issues uh-huh. of abortion, euthanasia, uh, transgender, um, LGBTQ and so on. She's mm-hmm. found a way of applying it very neatly okay. and showing how the philosophical worldview that people have, whether they acknowledge it or understand it or not, has had these devastating consequences and why uh-huh. people don't can justify it and don't see anything wrong with it. It's right. It's it's both horrendous and bizarre at the same time. The fundamental worldview being that uh, when we're talking about these specific issues, that we are, that we have a body and that we uh, are or become a person and it is each person's right to exercise authority over their body and do with it what they however they see fit. Yes, because you interpret reality however you want to interpret it. And of course, we know that critical theory doesn't work because uh, if I'm interpreting my reality and you're interpreting your reality, that's fine until they collide over something. Exactly. And then Uh, the meaning of life becomes war. And and, this is is why foundationally they see reality as perpetual struggle between oppressed and oppressor. Right. So they... 
where the the post the critical theory answer to what happens when two realities collide is that the person who's at the bottom of the pile and is defined as most oppressed, right. their rights take precedence over somebody else's. Right. And um and it again it is it it is ludicrous because yeah. what what how it works out is that there's a pecking order and you know you you the all the, you have to have every possible disadvantage and consider to you know you would be considered to be oppressed in every possible way which isn't just I mean the beginning of it is just let's say someone who's homosexual but if you're transgender then you have more rights over a homosexual person. And if you're uh, disabled um, and transgendered and homosexual, uh, or but then if you're obese and disabled and transgendered and homosexual, and that's without getting into black, there's degrees of color. So a, an Asian would be would would have less rights than a black person. A lighter black person would have less rights than it. So you see, you, you it's absolutely ludicrous. It comes down to the point where um, you're looking for this elusive person who has all of these characteristics and can exercise all power over everybody else. Yeah. The most ludicrous thing of the whole thing is that almost all of the people who teach this are wealthy and white and on yeah. their own on their own uh, base of their own teaching, they said, all quit their jobs and find someone who is obese, disabled, transgender, homosexual, and black, uh, because that's the only person that really has the right to say anything into the world right. that we live in. They have some kind of epistemological advantage. They, they can know things that we can't know uh, because of their position in, in society. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a it's a kind of a perversion or development baby of Marxism. That's what it is, <laughs> uh, and and that goes back to Hegel uh, and his idea of of thesis, antithesis, synthesis of of um, a continuous evolution through struggle, which <laughs> Marx picked up on. It was he wasn't original. Marx just took the philosophical side out of Hegel and and. He was materialistic and he applied it to economic class struggles. So anyway. Right. Uh, and then I've heard he, people talk about a man named Antonio Gramsci who then p pondered why the, the the Marxist revolution failed and posited the idea that there needed to be uh, a an inside out working throughout all of the cultural touch points, education, religion, all those kinds of things to help people see how these oppressive structures exist um, and then in order to achieve some kind of communistic utopia. So, Well, how did that work for the Russians and Chinese? Didn't work too well, did it? And, it's not and working great. Well, theory, it ain't working either. Uh -huh. uh, and, you know, it, it, it's so inherently ridiculous. You know what's interesting to me is you have all of these, um, you have a lot of uh, traditional materialistic thinkers um, who are, they are very passionate about objectivity, rationalism, the ordering of things, not because they believe in an intelligent mind, but, um, because they empirically see reality to be that way. 
that two plus two equals four. And uh, I'm thinking of, you know, figures like James Lindsay, Helen Pluckrose, who wrote Cynical Theories, which is uh, a, a discussion on all the different kinds of critical theories. It's a brilliant. Brett Weinstein, it's a great brilliant. book. Uh, you have, um, what's the talk show guy? Uh, Bill, Bill Maher, Bill Maher. Uh, you, have, you have a lot of people that are pushing back on colloquially what colloquially what we would call wokeness, you know, all of these postmodern theories because they're passionate about objectivity and facts are facts. They, they love that lower story. There's a war between the upper story and the lower story and the upper story wants to break into the lower story and say, actually, what's really real is the upper story. And this lower story is, is just the oppressive forces of Western civilization, you know, saying what it believes to be true and trying to enforce that upon the rest of the world. But what's so fascinating to me is that all of, there doesn't seem to be any willingness to recognize that their own materialism is what gives way to these postmodern theories. Like there's a, there's definitely an alliance there, right? So like, I would say, yeah, read cynical theories. Like, listen to these guys. They have some good things to say. They themselves, their own worldview perpetuates the issue. Well, they don't realize the the uh, uh, contradiction in their own position. Uh, so to us, you know, if you read this book, Cynical Theories, it's a brilliantly, it's a brilliant critique, description and critique of uh, critical theory. Uh, and it's outstanding. Um, but... Uh, these people are traditional sort of classic materialists, modernists, yeah. all them. Uh, and you get the same kind of thing with J.K. Rowling versus the transgender thing. She would be <laughs> a traditional modernist. Um, none of them have any time for Christianity, uh, but um, <laughs> the inconsistency of the modernist is I'm making value judgments. I have philosophical values. I am critiquing, um, you know, for instance, post postmodernism. Uh, but, uh, where, where do I get the idea that there is such a thing as good and such a thing as evil or wrong, uh, without, uh, if I am just a collection of atoms, where on earth would I get or have the right to state that anything is right and anything is wrong. Because as soon as I get into moral values, I'm indicating that there is a mind uh, that I'm operating in that transcends and is bigger than uh -huh. and is making judgments uh -huh. over the material reality of who I am as a, as, as a physical person. Uh, now, Christians and Jews and Christians have a great answer to that. You know, we, you know, we were created in the image of God. God has given us uh, a share of his mind and, and of his personality. That is, that is, but at the same time, uh, he has given us a body to live in uh, as an expression of the, the world that he created to be uh -huh. good. That's so it all, it all, Christianity, Judeo-Christianity makes absolute perfect logical sense. And, and, and so we as, as Christians, for instance, we can, we, we can make a critique of postmodernism. I may make, might make a similar critique to, you know, the people who wrote that book, Critical Theories. I might come up with 99% of the same uh, conclusions that they do. 
The mm-hmm. difference is I actually have a coherent An answer, world, which allows me to make those criticisms, mm-hmm. whereas they don't. It's like Stephen Hawking. Um, Dr. Hawking, you know, how, what makes you think that you actually are a person who can make value judgments and say that things are good and things are evil and things are wrong and, and that's how you lived your life, whatever your judgments were, but you didn't, on the basis of your own philosophy, you don't really have any um, basis for making any of those judgments. You don't even have a basis. Well, Tom, for- Tom Holland would say, Tom Holland would say that even when you're disagreeing with Christianity, you're disagreeing on the basis of, of Christian thought. In, in other words, if you're going to call th- if you're going to call things in Christianity wrong or immoral, the reason that you think that way is because y- your own thinking has been so Christianized in, in the West. And any is an atheist, he's a non-believer. It's why it's why most people around the world doesn't matter what culture you go in, the vast majority of people believe in God because people are have enough common sense in them to realize that if you don't believe in God then life doesn't make sense. Nothing makes sense. I mean, they might not have a right idea of God, but through all, and not just today, but through all of human history. And there's absolutely no evidence that the world as a whole is getting any less less religious. I've read studies that indicate uh-huh. it's getting more religious. Uh-huh. Um, so, I mean, you know, think about people saying, well, the universe is directing me. You know, they don't want to admit it's God, but they are saying there's some kind of, force, power, being, reality out there that is somehow personally personal enough in nature to direct the course of my life, um, even though I don't believe in the tradition, traditional biblical view of God. So yes, the sir. Greeks said, well, it's the gods. Today we just say it's the universe, but it's a religious point of view. Yes, anyway... But Nancy yeah. Pulsey, you know, poor old Nancy, we haven't hardly got to her today. I've been talking about everything else, but I'm... Well, we're, she's yeah. the inspiration for the conversation. She is. And, and, and we're trying to give people a framework, I guess, to... This is, this, is, this is the way that she's thinking. All these things that we're talking about, she's got all of this. And, and uh, she's made this correct analysis. And now, on the basis of this analysis of the ludicrousness of the world around us, she's going to home in on these actual issues uh-huh. and, uh, sh- and give us some answers and show us that as Christians, we actually have very strong grounds <laughs> for being, for instance, pro-life or anti-euthanasia <laughs> or the positions that we would hold on sexuality and gender. <laughs> she's going to, you know, get her, she's, she's firing some nuclear weapons here. Well, yeah, she would say that Christianity is actually the the worldview that has a high view of the body, that that we have the highest regard and respect for uh, for the human body and the dignity that inherently comes along with it. So we're going to go into uh, all kinds of topics as associated with her frame of thinking here, everything from assisted suicide to abortion to uh, the sexual revolution, uh, same-sex activity, transgender ideology, all those kinds of things. It's going to be really, really uh, fun and fruitful discussion. Let me close this out with this. She has this quote, uh, 
and as promised, brings us back to the eschatological discussion. She says, when Paul says in his letter to the Philippians that we are citizens of heaven, most Christians interpret that to mean we should look forward to leaving earth and going to heaven, which is our true home. In other words, she means that in the, I think in the sense of like a Gnostic type view, like an escapist type mentality. Obviously we look forward to, uh, to heaven, both in the, uh, spiritual sense and in the ultimately renewed material sense in the new creation. But that is not what the passage meant to first century readers. The city of Philippi in Greece was a Roman colony where many had the privilege of Roman citizenship. The citizens of a colony were not supposed to aspire to go back to Rome. Their job was to secure a conquered country by permeating the local culture with Roman culture. And then she goes on to essentially connect that to as citizens of heaven, we are supposed to be permeating the earth with uh, kingdom culture, kingdom values and beliefs. So this brings us back to our age old ongoing discussion in what I would call uh, an amillennial perspective versus a post-millennial perspective and how deep and widespread is Christian's thought supposed to make its way through all of the different structures of society, even to the point of um, a Christianized culture through and through? Well, what it really excludes is the premillennial perspective, <laughs> uh, especially dispensationalism uh, in, uh, in that you know, for instance, in 1 Thessalonians 4, it's the same idea. We're, we're citizens, you know, of heaven. And where the appearing of the Lord and our meeting with the Lord, uh, as he, as he comes, comes down, so to speak, I know it's spatial language, not adequate, but, uh, and we go to meet him, uh, dispensationalism teaches that he's come to get us out because he's lost control of the world and the devil's going to take it over. Whereas the text actually refers to Caesar coming to a city to reclaim or claim authority over it, the citizens come out to meet him and escort him back into the city to reign and rule. <laughs> and so what Paul is saying is that at the return of the Lord, we will meet the Lord and we will escort him back into the city of this renewed earth to reign and rule. It's the absolute opposite of the rapture. And so, but all of our lives, we're citizens of the kingdom. Like I said at the beginning, we're kingdom people. The kingdom is now. Therefore, um, that gives us a basis not to be a holy huddle that is just sitting around waiting for the rapture. But we're, And that's why that sort of teaching has such devastating effects on Christianity as a whole. But we are <laughs> people who want to establish the kingdom of God here and now. And as you point out, there's, you know, different points of view in terms of what does that look like? Uh, you know, how much is it going to accomplish before the Lord's return uh -huh. and is, is, you know, but in principle, in any event, in principle, we are to be salt and light in this world. We are to have an effect in this world, uh, whether that effect bears fruit or whether it is rejected. Um, nevertheless, we, we give it our best shot because this world, you know, as, as I, I a discussion many, many years ago, the Pentecostal pastor said to me, the world belongs to the devil 
And I said, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And the, <laughs> uh, you know, this, this world belongs to the Lord, <laughs> even though we acknowledge the power of the enemy and we're going to do everything, everything possible in our power to bring heaven <laughs> into this earth. And that's what Nancy Piercy is trying to help us to do. Yes. It's that, that constant tension that I find myself self in as seeing the reality of, of suffering uh, in the New Testament and especially in the book of Revelation. Um, and that keeps me from being triumphalistic in my Christianity. But at the same time, I, I, it's almost like every amillennialist must be a functional postmillennialist. And, and we must function in the world as those who believe that it will be ultimately Christianized. Uh, and in the return of Christ, it, it will be, the kingdom will fully come and this earth, which groans to be renewed, will be fully and finally renewed and there will be final judgment, uh, upon evil. Um, and so I guess the best I can come up with is like, keep pushing open the doors until the person on the other side of the door, you know, <laughs> walks out and, and attacks you. Um, it seems to me the most appropriate Christian response that Christianity should make its way into every sector of society and seek to influence with the gospel. And I certainly have in mind the political world there. Uh, that, that seems to be pretty compatible with a post-millennial eschatological view. Or with an all-millennial. That's just reformed teaching. You know, Calvin saw that and the, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And we're to be salt and light in the midst of it and try to extend the kingdom of God because that's our commission to the ends <laughs> of the earth before the Lord returns. <laughs> but we understand in the process of it, as my friend uh, David Devinish, who's written some amazing books and established hundreds, hundreds of churches in extremely difficult countries, but he <laughs> makes a statement, the kingdom moves ahead, but at a price. And in, <laughs> in his own life and in the many hundreds of, pastors and church leaders that he's associated with, some of whom have been martyred um, and others of whom have had a incredible success. The kingdom moves ahead, but at a price. That's, that's what we believe. You know, we, we don't believe that we're going to be spared from suffering. We don't believe everything is going to be perfect. But at the same time, we do believe in the power of the kingdom and we're to push forth those boundaries until Jesus returns. And Jesus won't return until the gospel has gone to every ethnos, to every people group. That's the one marker we have <laughs> in terms of his return. And, and it hasn't happened yet. So that's why I say, okay, you know, I, we mustn't set dates, but it doesn't look to me like Jesus is going to return anytime soon because the gospel has not gone to every ethnos by any means whatsoever. It's progressing <laughs> wonderfully, <laughs> but we, we're not there yet. <laughs> yes, good. Uh, yeah, I'm very happy to camp out in that. Um, and I think that's the, definitely reflective. And it reminds me of Revelation 11. Am I right that the two witnesses in Revelation 11 are uh, symbolic of the church? Correct. Yes. And they are pictured here as in verse 5 of chapter 11. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. So there's this sense of victory and triumph the church experiences in combating the powers and principalities that are at work in the world. They have the power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain. Obviously a reference to Elijah here, Elijah and Moses being the depiction of the two witnesses. 
Um, but then there's also the reality of now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also the Lord was crucified. So the church will be uh, persecuted. And it seems that towards the end of uh, this age, the persecution will increase a great deal. And for three and a half days, three and a half being symbolic of suffering, um, three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. So there'll be mockery. But the three and a half days is to be compared to the 1260 days or three and a half years. So the time of progress is greater than the time of deep, deep suffering and persecution. I think we could fairly say, um, even though there's persecution throughout. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. And there's more that could be read there, but there's the reality of both. There's progress of the church, there's victory, there's triumph, there's, there's advancement of the kingdom, but there's also persecution um, both now and in the future before Christ returns. But ultimately we have the victory in him. Amen. Amen. God bless you, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to the Good Theology Podcast. We greatly appreciate it. And we look forward to diving deeper into the next chapter of N.C. Percy's book, Love Thy Body, next week. See you then.